Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A new exhibition at Emory's Carlos Museum looks at the irreversible damage caused by humans, including global warming, pollution, and colonialism. Later this hour, we'll hear about some of the crises examined in the show titled, And I Must Scream. Today begins Women's History Month, and our first segment is about two strong and independent women, twin sisters, whose lives diverge in a compelling story. When Britt Bennett's novel, The Vanishing Half, was published two years ago, it became an immediate bestseller and was included in the New York Times' Best Books of 2020. The story of twins from a small Louisiana town is riveting as it explores themes of identity, colorism, and class. The novel is available in paperback now, and the author joins us via Zoom. Britt Bennett, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have created characters that will remain with readers long after finishing the book. To understand the twins, Desiree and Stella, please Tell us about their hometown, which you describe as more of an idea than a place. Yes, the twins come from a town called Mallard, Louisiana, which is a very small farm town that is oriented around the idea of colorism. Um, So they come from a town that is occupied by light-skinned Black people who believe that it's superior to be light-skinned. And they both have some very different reactions to coming from a place like that. Mm. It's just so strange to read about this colorism, the strangeness of people who have this standard, who are never accepted as white, but refuse to be treated like Negroes. And one of the things that was sort of chilling was that the founder of the town envisioned a more perfect Negro. You write each generation lighter than the one before. 
But a few generations later, what has this pigmentocracy meant for the people of Mallard? Yeah, I think that that was one of the big questions I had thinking about the book, because this is a community that pursues lightness for its own sake. It doesn't yield in any actual tangible or material benefits for this community. They still are living in this the small sort of poor community. Um, they still experience racial violence. They still experience discrimination. It's not like being light spares them from any of those consequences. But at the same time, they are trying to forge this different place for themselves. Um, they are trying to separate themselves from darker skinned Black people. So to me, there was always something really uh, absurd about the idea of this type of community um, because it's pursuing lightness just for its own sake and to think about the implications that that causes on those who live there and also those who leave. Yeah. The book is divided into four parts. The first is titled The Lost Twins. Please tell us about Desiree and Stella. Yeah, so Desiree and Stella descend from the founder of the town and they are seen as being charmed in one way because they are the daughters of uh, many generations of the of the founder, but they're also seen as sort of cursed in a different way because their father um, is, is brutally killed. Uh, so they come from this very kind of mixed lineage, but Desiree is the one who is more outgoing. She wants to desperately leave Mallard and, and go off and find herself in the big city and become an actor. And Stella only wants to go to college and, and imagines that she'll move back to Mallard and live a very quiet life. Um, but through a series of twists and turns, they uh, live some very different fates. And in the beginning of the book, Desiree has returned to the town and, and Stella has disappeared. Your exploration of the multiple roles we take is most striking with the twins. In a high school production of Romeo and Juliet, you write, Desiree felt like herself instead of half a twin when she was Juliet on stage. And I love reading this sentence from Desiree. Telling Stella a secret was like whispering love into a jar and screwing the lid tight. Why did you want to write about twins? Well, I think I'm always very interested in sisterhood as a person who has two sisters and is generally just interested in writing about the relationships between and among women. But I think twins were particularly interesting, interesting to me because of that tightness of that bond, um, because of the way that for these twins, they love each other and they feel also like they are sort of trapped in this claustrophobic relationship at the same time. And I think Stella's decision to pass is more striking because they are twins and because her decision requires her to leave her sister behind. Um, so for her, it is, a, it is a decision that she's making about identity and race, but it's also a decision that she is making to forge her own life without her sister. And she feels like it's only possible to forge her own life if she leaves her sister behind. Mm. The twins are little girls when they witness the tragedy of their father's death, this brutal murder. What is the impact of his death on the trajectory of their lives? Well, I think, as you said, I mean, the fact that they witness it is, of course, traumatic. 
but also the fact that his death is never quite explained. It's, it's a really senseless death that doesn't have a clear cause. And I think that that's something in particular that haunts Stella, who is the more kind of rational thinker between the two of them. That's something that, that truly haunts her, the sort of senseless violence that her father suffers only because he's Black. Um, and I wanted to think about how both of these twins witnessing the same traumatic event respond to it very differently. I think Desiree thinks, you know, her father was very light and he still was killed. So therefore, who cares about lightness? That's kind of her, her conclusion. But Stella's conclusion is that her father was very light and he still was killed. So it's not enough to be light. You need to be white if you want to be safe. Mm. There's a subtle class distinction between the girl's mother, Adele, and their father, Leon. How does this begin another probing theme, that of classism in the vanishing half? Yeah, I think that class is such an interesting category because it is a category that it's, I, I think we understand it to be more possible to move uh, between and perhaps even easier to move between than something like race. But at the same time, it is something that, again, you continue to carry with you or other people will continue to remind you of as soon as you move from one class to another. So I think for the twins, you do have you know, her mother who comes from a higher class than her fa their father. So this idea of whether the twins are blessed or cursed sort of as a response uh, uh, to that. But then also later for Stella, she meets a white man, but he's not just any white man. He's, he's a very wealthy white man who comes from family money. So not only does she have to think about how to pass for white, she also has to think about how to pass for wealthy. And that requires its own type of performance. Mm. Leaving Mallard was Desiree's idea. This was in 1954. Staying in New Orleans was Stella's. How did Stella begin passing as white? This is something that Desiree has to kind of untangle in the beginning of the book because for her, Stella passing as white was just like a singular moment or a, or a quick decision. But she comes to realize that this is something that Stella had been thinking about a bit longer. And being new in New Orleans is what gives her the practical reason, uh, the sort of logistical reason to actually do it. So for Stella, ostensibly she's passing for white because she needs to get a job and she will get hired for this well-paying job if they believe her to be white. But you learn that Stella has been thinking about these questions of uh, of what it means to be white or what it means to be Black for much longer than that. Britt, you are masterful with metaphor. And I know it was actually the name of a store in New Orleans, but the place where Stella works is called Maison Blanche, essentially the White House. That must have been fun for you. <laughs> It was fun for me. Um, and it was something again, yeah, I, I was reading something and stumbled upon that department store and immediately was like, yeah, that's perfect. Uh, <laughs> it has to be where she, like that is literally the place where she walks in as a black woman and leaves as a white woman. So yeah, it was a happy accident stumbling upon that detail. And continuing great metaphors, Desiree ends up in Washington, D.C. and she takes a job at the F. FBI. What does she do there? Uh, she becomes a fingerprinting analyst. And that was just a detail taken from my mom's life. That, that was work that she did when she was a young woman. She left her small hometown and went to D.C. with her sister, actually. 
and worked as a, as a fingerprint analyst. And that was always just something interesting and cool that my mom had done that I, I loved the idea of her doing that type of work and found it really fun, but I'd never written about it. And when I started working on this book, it sort of occurred to me like, duh, that, that is something that speaks to the thematics of this book, that this is a woman whose job is to tell who people are from markings on their skin. And yet she is somebody and she and her sister are people who are moving through this world um, ambiguously because of what they look like. And her sister is the person she most desperately wants to find, but is unable to. Mm. It's in D.C. where Desiree meets Sam, a lawyer whom she marries. I know your dad's also a lawyer, but I think from what I've read, not at all like Sam. What's (laughs) wrong with Sam? Yeah, my dad did not appreciate uh, the, the lawyer in the book. So terrible. So yes, he was not at all um, um, based on my dad. But Sam is um, works as a, a prosecutor, and he's uh, a man who, when Desiree meets him, seems like he's just Prince Charming, um, but turns out to be um, an abuser. So a lot of, uh, in in part, you know, I thought about Sam because Desiree, when she meets him, she really has no family. She sort of estranged from her mother and Stella has already disappeared. So he becomes the center of her life in this way. And it seems like he's going to kind of rescue her. But over time, she realizes that he is not her rescuer and that he is somebody who wants to abuse and control her. Mm. They have a daughter together, a sweet child named Jude. Jude's experience after her mother returns with her to Mallard is heartbreaking. The description of how she's bullied is almost as disturbing as her grandfather's death. How does Jude's darkness further illustrate the absurdity and the injustice of colorism? Yeah, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to introduce Jude, Desiree's daughter, and to think about what it would be like for her to grow up in this place. And it was something that I began to, as I wrote it, began to think of as, as a type of violence, what she suffers. And not only that, I wanted to think about how once she eventually is able to escape from this town as she grows up, how she still carries the town with her and how she still carries the ideology of the town with her. It's not something that she can just easily shake because this is a town that tried to teach her to hate herself. So I started to think, okay, once she eventually leaves this place, how is it that she can try to unlearn that hatred? And how how does Jude deal with this painful childhood? I think it's something that she tries to sort of outrun in a way. I think, you know, she wants to become a doctor. She wants to move on and do these other things and tries to tell herself that she's past it because she no longer lives in Mallard. Um, But it's something that seeps its way into her relationships. It seeps its way into how she thinks about herself as she moves through the world. And I wanted to be real about that. I didn't want it to make it seem like you can just shake something like that once you leave. I think we are all shaped by our paths in different ways. So it's something that she tries to kind of outperform in a way and and tries to tell herself that that will be enough, but still finds herself um, being haunted by this, this past. We haven't talked much about the men in this story. Early Jones is one of my favorite characters ever. I love Early. Would you tell us about him? Yeah, Early is one of my favorites, too. He's a bounty hunter who uh, you meet at the beginning of the book. 
and he is sort of has this tough exterior but this heart of gold and you learn that he has his own childhood wounds that he's trying to kind of outrun but I I love that character too I, I think that he is somebody who kind of begins the book sort of thinking of himself as a man who never settles down and never really has roots and is very uh, very easily walks away from everything um, but then when his story collides with Desiree's you learn that that's not so true and it's not so easy for him to leave her behind <laughs> indeed and you're writing oh my goodness he seduces her with fruit <laughs> yeah I thought that was sweet I Part of that was, I think my mom told me a story about having a crush on the neighborhood boy who would carry the groceries to her house um, and always being a little embarrassed because <laughs> she grew up in a family that, that they didn't have a lot of money and she was kind of embarrassed for him to come to her house. She had a crush on him. So I always thought something about I, this guy, you know, that there's something very, I guess, uh, you know, I, I never, I didn't grow up in any type of setting where some, like the idea of someone bringing groceries to your house um, who you had a crush on was such a, was such like a specific detail. So I love the idea of early showing up in her house with these groceries and that transforming into this sort of gesture of devotion that was very like sweet. So, so yeah, it was something that kind of spun out from this story that my mother told me about growing up in the small farm town, but, um, became, I think a, a type of, of courting that, um, that I thought was really sweet. It is. And, and courting is a better description than seduction because it really is more that he woos her with the fruit he brings. I got to tell you, I picture early as Idris Elba. <laughs> I mean, I think nobody would turn that down. <laughs> <laughs> Reese is another richly drawn character and a good person. How does Reese's story further illustrate being two people in one lifetime? Yeah, I think Reese um, was a character who I really loved because I thought that his his story kind of becomes a counterpoint to Stella's in a lot of ways. Um, Jude Re meets Reese um, and, and they fall for each other. And he tells her that he's trans. And I loved the idea of his story being a counter to Stella because he is somebody who experiences a physical transformation, but remains himself. His, his transformation brings him closer to himself versus Stella who doesn't really change physically, but becomes somebody else psychologically and emotionally. So I love the idea of those stories being intention, but also I just love the idea of, yeah, I think he's a sweetheart. I think that he, he is somebody who really wants to love Jude in a way that she does not believe anybody would love her. So, so much of the tension, I think, in that relationship is both of these people who grew up under circumstances where they were made to feel unlovable, trying to learn how to love each other and allow themselves to be loved. And his introduction signals such a welcome change in Jude's life. She has friends, she has a community, and his friendship with drag queens lets you explore Yet another aspect of dual or multiple roles. Yeah, I, I loved that writing that part of the book where Jude is like kind of her college years. And she, as you said, she makes friends, she, she finds community and she finds love. Um, but I loved the idea of drag being a different way to think about gender, to think about playing with identity and experimenting with identity 
um, in a way that's not traumatic, in a way that like Stella's experience of transformation is quite traumatic for her. Um, but for the community that, that Jude finds in going to these drag shows and, you know, that is a type of, um, I, there was something about that that I just really loved of a way of thinking about identity as, as play and as um, experimentation and as something that can be liberating. Yeah. At first, Stella's choice to pass as white seemed difficult to maintain, but she manages to do so. At what cost to her? I mean, I think at great cost to her. I mean, off the bat, she is forced to leave behind her family. She's forced to leave behind her sister. And she's forced to leave behind a, you know, huge chunks of her past. She's never quite able to form intimate relationships with people, not even her daughter or her husband, because she can't really be honest about her own life and what she's experienced. So there was something about that that I always found really sad, while at the same time, I also found I think that what Stella experiences is for her in a lot of ways liberating. She does forge a path for herself that would not have been possible otherwise. So there is something liberating, but at the same time, very painful. Yeah, and I would think it difficult to write about this choice without being judgmental or without wanting readers to be judgmental. How do you want us to respond to this very complex and life-altering decision? Well, I think going into it, I was very nervous that readers would be judgmental. But I think it's been a pleasant surprise to see most people don't judge Stella. I think I, I don't know that she's anybody's favorite, but most people don't judge her. I think most people come to a place of understanding of why she makes the choices that she makes. And I think that that's where I had to be as well. Whether um, you know, I knew that I was writing about a character who makes choices that are very difficult for me to imagine myself making. But at the same time, I kept thinking about this idea of, you know, who has never fantasized about just moving someplace new where nobody knows you and starting over. Um, that was, I think, my entryway to Stella, which had nothing to do with race, but had everything to do with, I think, her desire, which is to create a new life for herself and to leave behind the pain of what she has experienced and to start over. And that was something that I felt was really I, something I could connect to and also something I felt like readers would be able to connect to, even if they felt like they disagreed with the choice that she made. Stella's life further enables us to examine the impact of class and wealth. And I think her surroundings attest to the richness you achieve in creating place. Um, she lives in Brentwood, this very wealthy section of Los Angeles. And your description of the homes, the parties, the people, and their dress is, is very detailed in the same way that you describe Mallard. But her life, amidst all of this opulence, is sterile. I think so. It's, you know, I think I wanted to think of her being trapped in this kind of suburban hell where she's living in this beautiful exclusive neighborhood and has access to this wealth and lives in this big house and has this perfect little daughter and all of this. 
but at the same time, she doesn't have friends. She doesn't have people who she feels like she can really talk to. She feels like she's on guard always. And, um, you know, I wanted to think about Sela ending up at a place that was very different than when she came from. So, which is partly how I arrived at Brentwood. But I also wanted to think about her ending up in a place that's supposed to be this kind of at least somewhat progressive utopia. You know, she's in California. There's a sense that that is uh, more progressive than Louisiana. So there's a feeling that she has that she's moved to this place that is going to be different than what she's coming from. And it is in a lot of ways, but then there are other ways where the same experiences of race and racial violence and white supremacy are flaring up, just being presented under this very beautiful suburban veneer. Mm. I read that you had no fewer than 17 media bidders for the rights to this story. I, I believe it was HBO that you finally agreed with. Is that true? That is true. Yeah, it was a, it was a whirlwind of an experience <laughs> of lots of lots of phone calls. But it was so exciting to see, you know, we had so much really great attention for the book and so many people who were really excited about the possibility of adapting it. And of course, it's amazing to land at HBO, which I think makes such incredible uh, television. So couldn't be happier about where we ended up. So will it be a series or a movie? We're developing it as a limited series. Ah. And any idea when it will come out? Uh, no idea right now. Um, we're still in early days of developing it and trying to get the screenplay done. So we're still we're still at the beginning, but I'm excited to see how it all turns out and, and to read the, the final versions. Author Britt Bennett, her 2020 novel, The Vanishing Half, is available now in paperback. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll head to Emory's Carlos Museum to hear about their new exhibit, And I Must Scream. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. As we look around this world, we see irreversible damage caused by humans, including global warming, pollution, colonialism, and corruption. What do we do when Pandora's box of man-made issues has been opened? 
This question is demonstrated in a new exhibition at the Carlos Museum on the Emory campus, a show titled, And I Must Scream. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the curator, Dr. Amanda Hellman, who explains the five different themes of the exhibit here. The themes are environmental destruction, human rights violations and governmental corruption, displacement, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the final theme is a theme of regeneration and renewal. Um, So it's not a theme of destruction, but it's sort of the monsters of renewal. But the point is really not that we look at any of these themes individually, but really we look at the connections that you can't talk about the pandemic without talking about environmental destruction and displacement, that you can't talk about environmental destruction without looking at corruption and the ways in which these things are really speaking to each other and connected to each other. Mm -hmm. When you first enter the exhibition, you're greeted by this haunting photograph called The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters. Can you describe what this looks like and why you wanted to open the exhibition with this photograph? It's a photograph that's printed on an aluminum backing. So it has these really deep tones. And of course, because there are these taxidermied owls and bats and a lynx, it sort of has this more painterly quality to it rather than feeling like you're looking at something that's incredibly naturalistic. But it's a a photograph that is quite large. The central figure is nearly life-size. Uh, And it's based on Goya's 1799 print, The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, which he produced as part of a larger folio. It has this central figure asleep, hunched over a desk uh, with these creatures, owls and bats flying around, coming out of the darkness. And it's, you know, speaking, there's lots of ways to interpret this of the original print, um, and certainly those start to layer on top of um, what Yinka Shonabare is doing. But the one that I found most compelling was the idea that when reason goes to sleep, that it leaves room for monstrosity to emerge from the darkness. And I, I think that this is a really important opening photograph because of the way in which it situ- it, it sort of positions all of these themes. And then Yinka Shonabare, who's a, a British artist of Ni- Nigerian descent, he grew up in Nigeria. He is known for using wax hollandaise to create these sort of 19th century imperial, you know, British European garb. And it creates this really interesting conversation around, um, you know, the imperial movement and colonialism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Wax Hollandaise, which is this brightly colored mass-produced printed fabric, is now synonymous with African fashion, but it's produced in the Netherlands, has always been produced by a Dutch company called Vlisco, and is incredibly popular on the continent, but was originally produced to sell to their Indonesian colonies. And there was really no market there. So they started to sell it to West Africa and it sort of took off from there. So we see the layers of globalism, sort of a layer on top of this incredible reference to uh, Goya's print. 
Yeah, because the the man that's at the center of this photograph, he's wearing this like colonial style attire and you think it's colonial. So I thought it was interesting that you're like, well, this is actually Wax Hollandaise because I think when you first walk in, you would just think, oh, that's a man in colonial attire laying his head down on a desk. Exactly. And that's what he wants. He has this sort of subtlety to all of his works until you look at the the fabric itself, right? This sort of brightly mm-hmm. colored, incredibly patterned textile. Yeah. And I really loved the photograph because the owls and the creatures that are flying over to the man that's asleep on his desk have like a human-like expression. It's really haunting. You're just like, taken aback and you can't help but stare at this photograph for several minutes. Absolutely. The, 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 a lot of the little animals are making direct eye contact with the viewer that they're looking straight on in the photograph. Yes. So can you tell us about the meaning behind the name of the exhibition, And I Must Scream? So the exhibition title is based on a short story by a science fiction writer named Harlan Ellison. The story is, I have no mouth and I must scream. And it's about this, sometime in the future, this master computer that was built by humans to wage war on their behalf has destroyed humanity. But the computer has left behind just a few humans to to torture because the computer is left with all of this ability, but no will, no moral compass, and no ability to create and be creative. And so the computer is taking it out on, on these remaining humans. And the story, I think, sets a really nice tone, again, because on the one hand, it's this the story of how humanity destroys itself by creating systems, again, that sort of are monstrous, that have no moral compass to guide us. But it's actually supposed to be a story that has a bit of hope to it as well, because the protagonist makes the ultimate human sacrifice to set his fellow humans free. But of course, he does this in a very gruesome way. He kills them, but it sets them free from being tortured endlessly by this computer. And so this idea really ties into the exhibition in part because uh, as I was thinking about all of these different monstrous systems and elements and themes, I really was left with this sort of moment where I I wanted to explore, so now what, right? What happens once these monsters are released? Do they exist in perpetuity? Do they start to change shape and form? You know, I was thinking about the way in which maybe they are a lot like plastic, right? Once plastic is created, you can melt it down and reform it into something that looks different, right? You can turn a plastic bottle into a pair of shoes or a blanket, but it never goes away. And so thinking about the monster is something that maybe we need to um, take control over and redirect so that it becomes a monster of renewal and regeneration rather than of destruction. And again, I, I feel as though that's really what, at the end of the day, I have no mouth and I must scream, which is, is Ellison's probably his most famous story was really trying to explore. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It's kind of like, what do you do when Pandora's box is already open? Exactly. You know, when we spoke at the museum and you were giving me a tour, you told me that one of your favorite drawings in the exhibition is that of Steve Bendomas. The artist is from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and his painting is Perouche Peruk. And it's one that's just difficult to look away from. It's very colorful, but odd, a little strange. Why is this one of your favorites? It's one of my favorites because I think that there's this sort of obvious interpretation where the figure is on a white background and is wearing a traditional Western ceremonial military garb. It's kind of bedazzled in an interesting way where it's got glitter on the on the shoulders, but then the head, the sort of center of, of logic and compassion is replaced by a parakeet wig. And so you see this kind of bulging eye uh, emerge from this pandemonium of parrots. And so, you know, it's, I think that it speaks really nicely to this idea that the, the DRC, which in the Western imagination, I think is synonymous with corruption and exploitation, that what's happening in a sense is like the, the parakeet mimicking sounds, the new government that's coming in um, that replaces the old government is really just mimicking these moments, this exercise of power. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was interesting when you were telling me that the parrots on top of his head, that's not actually the parrots that are from the DRC when you were doing your research. Is that correct? Correct. So the, he used scarlet macaws and scarlet macaws are native to Central America, but they act in much the same way as their Central African relative, the gray parakeets. I was trying to find desperately why he would use this bird that is not native to the DRC. You know, I don't know if I find any of my, um, the, the reasons compelling that I came up with, but, you know, one, I think the scarlet macaw, which is, has this bright red um, head and then yellow and blue feathers as you move down the, the bird. That's sort of when we think of a a parrot or a parakeet, we might think of the scarlet macaw more than the gray parakeet. But when I was really looking for reasons, the DRC flag that was adopted in 2006, those are the colors of the, the DRC flag, red, gold, and blue. And so I found it, again, this sort of compelling visual image that that he's really making this connection to, to the DRC. Mm-hmm. Before you enter the next room, the doorway above that room has three panels created by Egyptian artist Ganzir. It's a very mesmerizing painting of a toddler on either side with drawing of the skulls underneath of the toddler. And up above the door frame in the middle is a drawing of a man with wings coming out of his head and his mouth. Can you talk about what that represents and the meaning between the toddlers and the skulls and the man who's in the middle? Absolutely. So the skulls are a toddler skull. And so the skulls have two sets of teeth, the baby teeth, and then the adult teeth kind of embedded deeper down in the skull. And it's juxtaposed with this incredibly angelic face of Ganzier's son, 18 month old son, and he sort of plays with 
the way in which they overlap in different ways in different parts of, of the two large panels. And, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting for a variety of reasons. One, this juxtaposition of this, what appears to be this kind of unnatural skull, right? Because that's not how we typically think of it, uh, of a skull with this angelic face produces this incredible tension and this sort of, it makes the skull even more sort of grotesque and terrifying even though it's, in, it's absolutely natural, right? That every child is born with their teeth already embedded and, and we're just sort of waiting for them to emerge. And for Ganzir, he really talked about how, you know, once a, a, a baby is born, they're born with everything they need. They're equipped with everything they need to become an adult over the lintel of the door. And I think he was very much thinking about Egyptian tombs and kind of the tomb-like and temple-like space of the museum itself, particularly, you know, it resonates with the Carlos Museum, which has an extensive Egyptian collection, ancient Near Eastern collection, and of course, an ancient Greek and Roman collection. And above the lentil is a portrait in yellow of, it's kind of a studio portrait of a young man named Khaled Saeed, who um, was brutally murdered by police outside of his home in uh, Cairo in summer 2010. So shortly before the, the Arab Spring and the Egyptian revolution. The picture that's painted over that studio portrait is a rendering that comes from an image that his brother took in the morgue when he was sent to identify um, Saeed's body. And so his jaw is, has been completely broken, um, his face is swollen, and he's unrecognizable. And then he leaked these photos onto social media, and it became one of the symbols used during the revolution and the protests in um, January uh, 2011 to protest police brutality, the brutality of the military and the corruption of the Mubarak regime. So the overall, I think, what he's, he's trying to really speak to Ganzir in this mural is the way, is, is questioning whether you know, the child who's born with everything they need to become an adult is prepared to face the kind of brutality and horror that Saeed faced. Curator Dr. Amanda Hellman speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans about, and I must scream, the new exhibition at the Carlos Museum on the Emory campus. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, we've been listening to a conversation with City Lights producer Summer Evans and curator Dr. Amanda Hellman. 
They've been discussing the new exhibition, and I must scream, on view now at the Michael C. Carlos Museum. Here, Dr. Hellman discusses Fabrice Montero's work, The Prophecy. Fab Montero, who is a Beninese-Belgian photographer, worked with a Senegalese fashion designer named Dulce to create this couture of monsters. We have five photographs in the, the series. It's a larger series. And four of those photographs are taken on the coast of Han Bay, which is near Dakar. Uh, and it's it was known as this sort of pristine, quiet fishing village for centuries. And after independence, there was a lot of deregulation in order to bring industry into Senegal. And then you saw an incredible amount of movement, migration of people away from rural parts and villages into the city. And so on this coast, on Han Bay, about 100 factories have moved in and dumped their waste directly into the bay. Um, you also have commercial fishing industry moving in and essentially not only taking the remaining fish after all of this pollution, but also leaving behind an incredible amount of waste, fishing nets and things like that. It's kind of interesting to think about why these industries would choose this bay because it's a natural feature that is protected from the circulation of the ocean. So this waste is also not diluted by ocean currents. But on the other hand, it means it's also, it doesn't feed into the ocean and pollute the surrounding ocean. And I think it's kind of this interesting juxtaposition. And I think that there's not, you know, this international lens looking at this space. So it becomes very easy for these corporations to hide their waste. You know, corporations are always putting the onus of um, protecting the environment on the individual. And the reality is that they're sort of hiding it in plain sight in many cases. Um, but these monsters that Dulce and Montiero created are just striking and terrifying. And I think it's the, the final photograph in that series is this sort of uh, VHS tape bull monster that's sitting on a pile of e-waste, old keyboards and computers and circuits and things like that and is holding this sort of torch, this a torch that's lit on fire of old cables. And I think about the way in which we are very much causing a lot of this destruction in the name of reducing our paper consumption and things like that, that we're always sort of replacing our phone every two years. We're getting new computers all the time and upgrading and all of that stuff, but it goes somewhere and it typically is shipped off to Africa. And thinking about VHS tapes, which when I gave a tour to students, I realized that they probably never used a VHS tape, but um, uh, I can think of the big box in my mom's basement um, and mm -hmm. she doesn't have a VCR, right? Um, and, you know, even thinking about um, the way in which just a few years ago, I was still getting DVDs from Netflix and playing them on a DVD player. And now I don't even have a DVD player you know, there's, it's going to continue until we sort of demand that it, it stop and that we really think about what is happening. And the problem is not just the physical phone or computer or television set. 
the problem is that in order to extract um, the elements that can be reused, you have to burn it. And so it releases toxins into the air and pollutes the water. You know, we in the global north are very much implicated in the pollution that's happening on the African continent in this case, but elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. That's what was so striking to me about prophecy number 11, the one that you're talking about with the VHS tapes and the old TVs and keyboards and all that was, I just always thought they ended up in a landfill somewhere here in America, like, oh, well, we're using them here, so they're going to end up here. But I had no idea that these old things that no one's using anymore are being shipped off to Africa. Like, okay, it's y'all's problem now. We don't want to deal with it anymore. Just how atrocious that is. Yeah, absolutely. And it means that we don't have to see the waste, which is going to keep us from understanding how to consume less, really. But it's, it is all, you know, this sort of full cycle in a sense that, you know, in the DRC, there are very dangerous processes to mine cobalt, which is used in, say, the battery of your phone. And that's sent off to China where it's produced. It comes to America. Then when we're done using it, it ends up back in, in Africa, exploiting people and resources and just basic human rights of clean air and clean water all along the way. This exhibition, I worked very hard. It's not about laying blames specifically on anybody, but really, again, helping to see in which the way in which these these elements are are connected and and then we're in the middle of it and we can make decisions that can help create change. And I think it's really important again to sort of see where we are in that process because, you know, art is not the thing that makes change happen, right? If people make change, legislators make change. And so the question is, well, what role does the art play? And I think this exhibition, what I'm so proud of, it's a group of artists that I think really help us understand the world around us in a different way. And hopefully that instigates the conversation that leads to getting our legislators to um, create policies that are in everyone's best interest. But, uh, you know, until then, I think we're going to see the way in which corporate opportunism creates environmental destruction. Curator Dr. Amanda Hellman, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans, and I Must Scream, is on view at the Carlos Museum on Emory's campus through May 15th. Finally today, happy birthday to Harry Belafonte. The legendary singer, songwriter, activist, and actor turns 95 today. Work all night and a drink a rum. Live celebration takes place in New York City this evening. 
a program that will include performances and the presentation of the inaugural Harry Belafonte Social Justice Awards. Bravo, Mr. Belafonte, for achievements in civil rights and bringing the world glorious music. A beautiful bunch, a ripe banana. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Mike Mills of R.E.M., Chuck Lavelle of the Rolling Stones, and award-winning violinist Robert McDuffie stop by ahead of their collaborative show in Macon this Saturday. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.